let me ask you, Lisa, where are you? What have you been doing? I'm in my bedroom, which I seem to be <laughs> sick of being in my bedroom at the moment. Yeah, I'm in my bedroom where my desk is, and um, I've just done no work today whatsoever, apart from Molesworth preparation. Lisa, I know that you go to the London Library to write, to do your actual writing. How has not being able to get out and go somewhere else affected your ability to produce fine prose? I've used it as a tremendous excuse to be so unproductive over the last few months, I can't even tell you. I despise myself, Andy, for for how much I've used it as an excuse. It's pathetic. I cannot write at home. And were you, when the London Library was open, were you were you running the gauntlet of the bus or what have you to I get there? I was the first person in when it reopened, Andy. <laughs> they had to prize me out with a great big crowbar. <laughs> yes, I've been in and out of central London all the time. And in fact, that's the last time we, we were gathered together, wasn't it? Because it was in the London Library for, our, for the Christmas show last year. Not far off a year ago, isn't that? Mm. And somebody was reminiscing to me how brilliant the song was, uh, Andy. So there we are, tribute to you. Ah, the song. Well, you know, some listeners are resistant to our musical elements, <laughs> the fools. Uh, Martin, uh, where are you? Well, I am um, giving a completely false impression of the life I lead because I'm actually in my wife Anna's <laughs> study where she, it's it's nice and it's tidy and it's, nicely lit and it's full of learned tomes because she's doing a philosophy PhD at Birkbeck at the moment. Nice lighting. But she has the laptop and I haven't got a laptop because I don't really understand any of this shit as, as Nikki will understand because she actually spoke to my technical support earlier on when Anna turned her laptop on because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> um, and normally I'd be upstairs where I have been most of the day and uh, in my studio which is organised chaos and uh, I've been doing a nice picture of uh, the Prime Minister's uh, departing special advisor, the 11-year-old whiz kid who thinks you can solve the world, you can solve the world through Minecraft or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> a sort of serious question. How has this particular uh, year in mankind's history affected your work? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting question, which has been asked of me repeatedly, because uh, here we are in the middle of uh, a, a monumental shit rain, possibly one of the most harrowing experiences of most of our lives, those of us who haven't lived through a world war, and most of us haven't, uh, where we are constantly surrounded by thousands and thousands of our fellow citizens dying as a consequence of a hideous disease, but also government mismanagement and misgovernance. And uh, it's that last bit which the satirists can, can link onto. Otherwise, we would go insane with existentialist terror if we were just surrounded by all this death and all this horror. But while we can still actually blame somebody, and I think we absolutely can blame the government for having the world-beatingly highest death toll on the planet, um, there is hope for us because we can <laughs> laugh at them in that wonderful mocking way that satire allows us to do. And through that laughter comes the redemption uh, because we release all those lovely endorphins. And, you know, the aforementioned Dominic Cummings going is actually a, a dark day for British satire because he was the first truly nominative, determined subject of satire because he's called Cummings and he's a wanker. Well, let's build from there. Let's take that, <laughs> let's take that energy and, yeah. and crank it all up from there. Mitch. <laughs> right, let's do it. Hello. And welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books, hem, hem. Today, it is our birthday. Cheers, cheers. But we're at school, which is utterly wet and weedy and smell of chalk, Latin books, school ink, football boots and birdseed. Actually, worse than this, some cads, rotters and swats want us to read peons. Cheers, cheers, cheers. We have to say the weedy words and speak them beautifully with expression as if we knew what they meant. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, Hello Clouds, Hello Sky. <laughs> and joining us today are, on this, our fifth birthday show. Yes, incredibly, we've been doing this thing for five, five years. years. Five years, 125 episodes two million <coughs> downloads uh, or listens or whatever. Anyway, and we are joined today by 
a new guest and the lady we refer to as the original guest. <laughs> Friend of the show. So, first up, joining us today for the first time is Martin Rosen. Yay! Hello. Martin is a multi-award winning cartoonist, writer, illustrator, broadcaster and poet. His work has been published everywhere from The Guardian and The Daily Mirror, his current homes, to The Spectator, Racing Post, Morning Star and The Erotic Review. His many books include graphic novelizations of The Wasteland, Tristram Shandy, Gulliver's Travels and The Communistic Manifesto, a glowingly reviewed but almost wholly unread novel, Snatches. We should do that on here, Mitch. Yeah. Uh, several slim volumes of verse, a one-word picture book titled Fuck the Human Odyssey and Stuff, a memoir about clearing out his late parents' house, which was long-listed for the 2006 Samuel Johnson Award. In 2001, Ken Livingstone appointed Martin Cartoonist Laureate for London in exchange for one pint of London Pride Bitter <laughs> per annum. Are you, are you still receiving that? Uh, no, it's, it's six years in arrears. I mean, it's six years from when, from when he was voted out of office. I only, I only got two pints, but, you know. <laughs> well, hopefully someone listening to this yeah, will speed on. you uh, come a crate of ale. And in 2017, uh, a full-page editorial inspired one of Mar by one of Martin's Guardian cartoons, uh, the Daily Mail describes him and his work as, quote, disgusting, <laughs> deranged, sick and offensive. Congratulations. He has uh, I'm going to have it carved onto my tombstone with <laughs> the Daily Mail written after it, like a theatre review outside a theatre. <laughs> he has served three terms as a vice president of the Zoological Society of London, lives in south-east London and has to stop collecting taxidermy. Uh, Lissa. Yes. We're also joined by Lissa Evans, official friend of the show and, as we said, the original guest. This is her sixth and a half backlisted appearance. She was on our very first show five years ago for JL Cars A Month in the Country. Our 35th and 36th shows, which was a combination of two episodes on Patrick Hamilton and then a drunken mini-cast on Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. <laughs> no, no one can remember any of it, even though it's on the internet. Our 70th episode on Charles Dickens's Great Expectations. Our 78th episode on Ghosts by Edith Wharton, which was our Halloween episode in 2018. And of course, last year's Proustmas special recorded at the London Library, which is our 108th episode. And incidentally, that episode is the most popular episode of Backlisted. So that leads me to ask you, Lissa, have you finished reading it yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Perfect. I'm eating it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. As well as making us look better, Lissa writes fiction for both adults and children. Her most recent novel, V for Victory, set in a boarding house in 1944, was published in August. I've talked about it on this show and is the third book in a loose trilogy following on from Old Baggage and Crooked Heart. Before she was a writer, she produced and directed radio and TV comedy. She considers her funniest book to be the Carnegie shortlisted Wed Wabbit, ostensibly for children. Hmm, this seems to have a link with the book we're going to be talking about, doesn't it? Ostensibly for children, though, to be honest, it could be seen as an allegory for almost anything. She read the audiobook herself and had to invent a different voice for each of seven different colours of Wimbly Woo, as well as a six-foot plastic carrot. She was hoarse for two days afterwards. Do you, do you read your adult stuff, Lissa? No, uh, nobody asked me to, but I, I insisted on doing this one. I, I just spend so much time getting jokes perfect when I write them and I just couldn't bear the thought of hearing a, a joke read wrongly so you've got jokes read correctly by somebody who's not really an actress as opposed to a brilliant actor not doing uh, the jokes quite perfectly I did massively enjoy doing it you know the precision of it was was very pleasing there is no audiobook of the complete Molesworth well there we go the book that Martin and Lisson are here to discuss is the Complete Molesworth, first published by Max Parrish & Co., limited in 1958 and reissued in expanded form as Molesworth by Penguin Books in 1999 and then in Penguin Classics in 2000. We'll say a bit more about what The yeah. Complete Molesworth consists of. It's slightly complicated. It is. Uh, but we'll, we'll come on to that shortly. But not so fast, John. Cheers, cheers. What better way to mark five years of doing this than to ask... <laughs> What have you been reading this week? Aha. Thanks for asking me, Andy. Um, I have been reading a very big book. It's called The Sea View Has Me Again. Uh, the subtitle is Uwe Johnson in Sheerness, 
by that uh, notable uh, historian, some might say psychogeographer, although I wouldn't. I think he's a, a historian, Patrick Wright. Uh, it is a 670-page, what is it? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's two things. A it's, book. It's, and, a, uh... it's a book. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a, a history. It's a history of Uwe Johnson, the great East German writer who arrived in the UK in the early 70s and lived for a decade in um, in Sheerness. It's 26 Marine Parade Sheerness. If it were light outside, I could see it from here. Yeah, uh, on the Isle of Sheppey. It is also a history, uh, a geography, a, a gazetteer of the Isle of Sheppey, this strange uh, a kind of um, island in the Thames estuary. Uh, and it's it's entirely fascinating on both those levels. I've never read any Uwe Johnson. He is one of those writers, I suppose, that came out of the um, the, 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 the the separation of Germany into two states. He was an East German. Um, he uh, escaped into the West, into the New York in the in the in the sixties, and as I say, fetched up much to the surprise of all his friends and to the uh, the shock of his his friends, who included people like Hannah Arendt and Siegfried Unset from uh, Surkamp, his publisher, who. Uh, one of the many things that is kind of interesting about this book is is the relationship over a period of time of a great writer writing his masterpiece, Anniversaries, his masterpiece, which is four volumes, uh, a, a huge cast of characters over a long, longish histor- historical period set in, in America. None of it is set in uh, Sheerness, but he did write quite a bit of uh, certainly the first, the fourth volume of, of the four in Sheerness. So it's an amazing feat of research. He gives you the newspapers. He was a, Johnson, the novelist, was obsessed with newspapers, particularly the, the, the Sheerness Guardian, um, which had some fantastic, you know, uh, fantastic headlines. You know, cats escaping from the cattery, that kind of thing. You know, the, the usual thing: Sheerness, Sheerness man in human, in human torch mystery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's there's social history there are, there's kind of uh there's there's the the history of the 19th century hulks the fights between you know obviously sheerness like a lot of these places became holiday cottages for uh, for for east enders uh, there's there's a lot of drinking i'm going to read you a passage you describe this to me as being like a bit like wg sabel if he had written a 680 page book rather than a, yeah, exactly. a 200 page book it's yeah. kind of it's like it, i think i might have said say well on steroids <laughs> let me read you a little bit this is this is johnson he liked his he liked to drink and he liked this is the pub he he used to hang out in which was called the napier tavern so the uh, the publican ronald peel told jens that's the reporter that's 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 that was one of the people who wrote about johnson after he died that Johnson had always turned up at the same time in the evening, stepping into the Napier Tavern saloon bar with a brief good evening or good evening, as Johnson himself imagines in the rest- registering his pronunciation, and then taking his customary place on a high wooden bar stool with a seat upholstered in red synthetic leather of the type Tom Waits was in those days hymning as Naugahyde. Mm. He allegedly always wore the same distinctive garb too, a black peached watchman's cap, a black jacket, black trousers, black leather boots, and sometimes a thin black tie. The same gear, in other words, that had shocked Michael Hamburger, who had been astonished to find this highly, the the translator, who had been shocked to find this highly regarded and sensitive writer going about in such garb. Even the ashtrays on the bar had to be black at his request. And to make matters worse, he would insist on having two, one for stubs of the French cigarettes that stank so disgustingly to Peel's frankly English nose, and the other for the matches, which Johnson, in a gesture that confirms other accounts of the exactness with which he measured his progress along the road to ruin, would line up in an orderly row as he made his way through the carefully counted cigarettes he allowed himself over a two-hour visit. Eleven cigarettes, eight pints of Herleman, and also, uh, that's a, a German lager, and also, just before returning home, a double vodka with tomato juice, ice and lemon, but without Worcester sauce, <laughs> served in a large glass. Such was the alleged tally by the end, Peel told Jens, rounding off his betrayal by adding not just that he'd been obliged to order in a special supply of Golwas, 
but that he had to return the entire stock to the supplier after the writer's death, since none of his other customers would dream of smoking these pungent foreign things. Anyway, without giving away too many spoilers, he he dies in living on his own. He he separates from his wife. He ends up living in 26 Moraine Parade. He dies and is not found for three weeks. Uh, there's a, a, I mean, a very Patrick Wright little detail. One of the reasons he wasn't found is that he drank his tea and his coffee without milk. So the usual telltale piling up of milk bottles on the doorstep didn't happen. Well, this is how Backlisted celebrates his fifth birthday with a 680-page and thoroughly miserable account of a man drinking himself <laughs> to death in Sheerness. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I loved every scrap of it. Uh, I have to say, I found it. I found it completely compelling, and uh, that might tell you more about me than it, it's. It's obviously <laughs> it's been not a hard year. <laughs> it's been. A, it's a. It's a hell of a lockdown read. Literally everything that has ever been written and has ever happened on the Isle of Sheppey <laughs> is, is contained in this book. In this book. How will I follow it? How How will I follow this? The CU has me again by Patrick Wright. Patrick Wright, brilliant writer, great book. Andy, what have you been reading? I've been reading Susanna Clarke's new novel, Piranesi, which is her first novel since Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which many of our listeners uh, will have read. I'm sure lots of people have been reading Piranesi in the last few weeks, couple of months. It's quite a hard novel to talk about because the less you know about it going into it, the better. I had strenuously avoided all reviews. I didn't even read the jacket copy because I didn't want to know anything at all about the book going in, with the result that a significant proportion of the book was mystifying to me. But what I'm going to say to listeners is, if you want to fast forward by four and a half minutes, you should probably do that. If you're planning on reading this book, or you like the sound of what I've just said, uh, I'm not going to reveal any spoilers, but but the less you know, the better. So you could feel totally happy to, 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 to go ahead slightly and get on to the Molesworth discussion. Okay, they've gone, those lightweights. Uh, we, can, uh, we can carry on talking about the Susanna Clark. You know how every so often a book comes out. I don't read loads of new fiction, obviously, because for professional reasons and, and, and also my sympathies tend to be with older books. So out of print books, dead authors, not living ones, not troublesome living authors, but safely in the ground authors. And I'm very sceptical of novels which are hailed for speaking for their moment unless they're by Ali Smith. Uh, I've just read a book by an author who shall remain nameless, which, which was spoiled totally by the sense that the author concerned was straining every sinew to capture what they thought the year 2020 was going to be when they wrote it. And obviously they've fallen completely flat on their face because things have turned out rather differently. Whereas Susanna Clarke's Piranesi, I hate the phrase, speak to, but seems to speak to this year and this particular moment and us living in our bubbles and in our various isolation with a sense of menace outside that we can't quite quantify incredibly skillfully and adeptly. And I said that I found the beginning of the book quite mystifying. That's what Susanna Clark wants. And by the end of the book, I was just totally gripped by it and very, very moved, very moved. I've, I found it, I haven't read a new piece of fiction which manages to marry intellect and imagination. I don't even know what, generically what it is. I suppose it's science fiction, but it isn't pure science fiction. It's, it's a really fascinating novel about dislocation. And given the gap between her novels and the fact that I believe she has been very ill in that period, one could also read it as a metaphor for uh, isolation via illness about never leaving a particular space and having to go outside by going inside by going into one's head and into one's imagination so the book is set in a imaginary what seems to be a museum albeit a very strange museum a vast museum full of statues seemingly without end and all i will say about it is as the book goes on, figures such as, for instance, Alastair Crowley or R.D. Lang come into this picture. And um, the narrator in the third chapter, the third chapter is called 
uh, a list of all the people who have ever lived and what is known of them. And I'll just read you a tiny bit of that. Entry for the tenth day of the fifth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. Since the world began, it is certain that there have existed 15 people. Possibly there have been more, but I am a scientist and must proceed according to the evidence. Of the 15 people whose existence is verifiable, only myself and the other are now living. I will now name the 15 people and give, where relevant, their positions. First person, myself. I believe that I am between 30 and 35 years of age. I am approximately 1.83 metres tall and of a slender build. Second person, the other. I estimate the other's age to be between 50 and 60. He is approximately 1.88 metres tall and, like me, of a slender build. He is strong and fit for his age. The other and I are searching diligently for the knowledge. We meet twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays to discuss our work. The other organises his time meticulously and never permits our meetings to last longer than one hour. If he requires my presence at other times, he calls out, Piranesi, until I come. Piranesi, it is what he calls me, which is strange because as far as I remember, it isn't my name. Third person, the biscuit box man. The biscuit box man is a skeleton that resides in an empty niche in the third northwestern hall. He goes on, other persons include the concealed person, persons 5 to 14, the people of the alcove, the 15th person, the folded up child. The folded up child is a skeleton. I believe it to be female and approximately seven years of age. She is posed on an empty plinth in the sixth southeastern hall. Her knees are drawn up to her chin. Her arms clasp her knees. Her head is bowed down. And he ends, the 16th person. You. Who are you? Who is it that I'm writing for? Are you a traveller who has cheated tides and crossed broken floors and derelict stairs to reach these halls? Or are you perhaps someone who inhabits my own halls long after I am dead? I really want to read this. I wow. really want mm. to read it. I thought this just was spectacular and also really exciting. You know that uh, those occasional moments you have where you think, gosh, that book's a bestseller. That's on shelves in yeah. virtual bookshops all over the country. Well, in fact, in real bookshops all over the country, but we can't necessarily access them easily. But I cannot recommend that highly enough. Susanna Clark, Piranesi, published by Bloomsbury. Great. Had that, it had a, what, that little bit you read just made me, gave me a slight Rob Shearman feel. Robert Shearman, a bit of Neil Gaiman. Yeah, a bit of Gaiman. Calvino. Yeah. A bit of Borges. Yeah, Borges, definitely. Yeah. And yet, how often are we gripped by a novel by Borges? Not necessarily terribly often. Or Calvino, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, Susanna Clark, I think, like I said, head and heart. Right. Brilliant, brilliant Fantastic. Book. That's really good. We'll be back in just a sec. Lissa, <laughs> where were you when you first became aware of the gorilla of whatever he is, St Custard's, Nigel Molesworth? Do you know, I've got a really, really clear memory of it because uh, I was living in Surrey with my parents. I was about eight and we had a, a sort of kitchen diner and I remember the milkman came to the door, back door, which opened the kitchen, and my mother had to explain to the milkman what that noise was. And that noise was me sitting in an armchair, hysterical at reading <laughs> Molesworth. I could not speak. And and the effect on me was phenomenal. I mean, it, I was about eight. And I think by then I'd, I'd read a lot. I'd read early and I'd read probably most of the Narnia books. I'd read, I'd read Mrs. Molesworth, high Victorian imaginative writer. I've read a lot, but I'd read proper books. And this was this was anarchy. I mean, you know, part of its impact yeah, yeah. was that there was nothing else like it at the time. You know, the, the, the terrible idiosyncratic spelling, the cartoons instead of illustrations. Um, you know, but the lack of structure, the lack of plot, the lack even 
of sentence and, and, and the fabulous sarcasm, the slapstick, the, the, you know, the cool protagonist sitting there taking the world apart with whatever verbal weapon he could get. It was, it was like, you know, Molesworth was driving a tank over the kind of books I'd read and I was next to him and, and, and he was crushing normal narrative, you know, beneath his caterpillar wheels, caterpillar spelt with one L and, and <laughs> I, I had never read anything like it. And I internalised vast numbers of the best lines. And and for years, they came out in my own writing, not the actual lines, but the rhythm of them, yeah. the, the shape of them. They provided me with a permanent pattern of what a funny line feels like. And and for me, that was a, that was you know that's an extraordinary turning point. My whole life, in some ways, has been about comedy. I produce com- radio and television comedy. I I write funny lines, and I know what they're supposed to feel like because because that's what Jeffrey Willens gave me. And 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 you know they they propelled me into the life I lead in some ways. Gosh, that sounds profound, but they did. That's why we asked you, Lisa. Yeah, so that's great. why we always ask you back. But the pros, we're going we're gonna to talk to yeah. Martin in a moment about the other half of the equation. I mean, I so enjoyed, at Mixed Our very jangly times, I, I so enjoyed having an excuse to sit and read <laughs> these from cover to cover again over the last week or so. And Lissa, I, I totally agree with you about the pros. It's just, it's just the the rhythms of it and the and the economy of it and also you write the anarchy of it because you don't know where it's going to go next and the variety of it there is there is you know the, the broadest yeah. of slapstick there's the stiletto footnote that digs in underneath it the bland prose there's the mm. satire that you know which builds and builds as you get older but you know the parody the pastiche you know he's had a huge variety of of techniques which he uses with Molesworth. Martin, that's Jeffrey Willans spoken for. I want to ask you, can you remember, you're obviously an eminent cartoonist. Can you remember when you first became aware of Searle as Searle, as opposed to someone whose work you were familiar with? I mean, or or perhaps can you remember the first time you you, you saw a Searle cartoon and laughed? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, Searle has been declared by the majority of my profession to be the greatest British cartoonist of the 20th century. And I think that's unquestionably true. Um, But I discovered Searle, like many people, through uh, Molesworth, because uh, he was no longer current by the time I became aware of political cartoons, which I started becoming aware of when I was, you know, nine or 10. Uh, In fact, I, I could date almost precisely the moment when I realised I wanted to be a cartoonist, when I stole my sister's history school textbook um, when I was about 10 years old and started thumbing through it. It was full of Gilrays and Crookshanks and Rowlandsons and Tenniels and David Lowe's. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And I went and found some pens and started trying to draw like Gilray etched. Um, but I remember precisely when I first bought Whiz for Atoms, um, I, I have, a, uh, I have a, a crystal clear memory of being 10 because my mother died when I was 10. And I suddenly found that uh, the best way to cope with that was through books. And there was one book, which maybe we can talk about some other episode of this, uh, called um, Let's Kill Uncle, which I've spoken about many times. Oh, yes. It was an fan- absolutely fantastic book. But also, I remember at my god-awful prep school, high church Anglican prep school... <laughs> where they had a book fair where people would come around and sell books and I was given some money to go to the book fair and I was already reading Let's Kill Uncle and I thought, you know, what, what's something else? And I was already immersed in cartoons but the kind of cartoons I was immersed in at that stage were probably people like Felwell and so on, you know, the great punch cartoonists who were around. And, of course, Searle was no longer around. He had fled to France in 1961. And I saw Wizard Atoms, I just thought, well, that's, that's a great cartoon on the front of there. Mm. And was immediately sucked in to this magnificent world. And it was as much <laughs> for Willans as it was for Searle, that they were almost perfect collaborators, which is really bizarre because if you look at the history of collaboration between writers and cartoonists, it's always been a sort of slightly 
slightly uneasy one. I've had relationships with various, uh, in a professional way, with various writers. I found it easier to actually write my own stuff to illustrate because you don't have to deal with the bloody writers that way. But, um, mm. uh, you know, it's uh, Ralph Steadman's relationship with Hunter S. Thompson was much, much larier and more unpleasant than yeah. Ralph yeah. often chooses to remember. But these two seem to be made for each other, although it was in fact set up because Searle was so fed up with the St. Trinian's girls, which he created, we can talk about them a bit more in a minute, that he wanted to try something else. We've got a clip here which from Ronald Searle himself. From, uh, and I've, I've, I've kept in the introduction for this because I think it, it just, well, you'll, you'll hear why. Mm. This was Channel 4 News in uh, 2010, ran an interview with Searle on the occasion of his 90th birthday, and they went to the south of France to interview him. So, so here it is. He's our foremost graphic artist, as any fool know. That's F-U-L-E-K-N-O. Ronald Searle, the illustrator of Molesworth and creator of St. Trinian's, is 90 tomorrow. He's given his first television interview in 35 years to our arts correspondent, Nicholas Glass, who joined him for a glass of bubbly in the south of France. Ronald Searle regards St. Trinian's as just a single chapter in a long working life. The Trinian stuff came up quite accidentally. They, they got published, it only lasted six years. My principle has always been the moment it's successful, kill it. Because it can only get worse. But basically I was more interested in illustration and reportage. Of course the British still feel safer with the comic appeal of Nigel Molesworth and his prep school St. Custard's, a glorious collaboration with the writer Geoffrey Willans. It was uh, a potpourri of ideas between Searle and Willans that actually made um, a book. People like it. They still like it, curiously enough. I was going to say, do you have an explanation? Well, not really, because in fact, th those days have gone. But there's, a, there's a, a basic public that still run around crying, um, as every fool know. Oh, hello clouds, hello sky. I don't know, it's a sort of cult thing. And it dribbled on. <laughs> <laughs> and it dribbled, dribbled on. There we are. That's, yeah. what we've, that's what we've gathered to celebrate. I don't know how the collaboration took place. Maybe Martin can talk about it. But what I love about it is the feeling that it was quite random in some ways. You know, sometimes there's illustrations which have nothing to do with the text. I think the Gaul going into Rome and then the Gaul coming out of Rome, that's what comes out of nowhere. But it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful illustration, very funny. But where does it come from? John, they give one another a lot of space, don't they? It struck me reading it again. Yeah. It's, it's so rare to get words and pictures to work like this. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, you're thinking collaborations, you know, Quentin Blake and Dahl. I love the surreal element to it. And I, I particularly, I've always loved the gall. And it's, it's funny, you go back to it. I, I mean, I read it, I suppose I read it when I was, I would have been about 10 when I first picked it up. And like you, this, it had absolutely, unlike a lot of the people who went to prep schools and who had kind of, my school was just an ordinary, it's just an ordinary primary school. But that's the thing. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have those references. The kind of brilliant pictures of teachers, they're just people in authority, aren't they? Philip Hensher says that, you know, he went to a comp. Our former guest, Philip Hensher, went to a comp. Uh, um, he says yeah. in his introduction to The Complete Molesworth that he was appalled when he was re reading Molesworth, which he loved one day, and realised that he was one of the oiks that <laughs> Nigel Molesworth was fulminating against or was being warned off. But it doesn't seem to matter, Martin, does it? No. This, that sense that Searle says about the world isn't like that anymore. Well, it clearly isn't. It's... An interesting clip. I mean, the the essential thing about this collaboration is they were equals, which is not always the case between an illustrator and a writer. It can actually go one way or the other. But in this case, they are absolute equals because, um, as you said, they give each other enough space to go and do their own thing. So, you know, Willans mentions a gerund, and suddenly yes. you have this wonderful <laughs> series of drawings I of a gerund, gerund going like off, demented. being taken off. <laughs> rebuffing a gerundive and not allowing it to be part of its sentence. But um, Searle, you know, typically of the man, he um, rather grumpily dismissed 
the genesis of his own art, because one of the essential things about Ronald Searle was, of course, that he was a prisoner of the Japanese from the age of 20 for the next four and a half years, uh, working on the Burma Railway, he was in Changi Jail, you know, saw things of a, a type which none of us, I hope, will ever witness and felt compelled to bear witness to it. So he was actually drawing at the same time, managed to get drawing equipment. Um, had he been um, caught with this stuff, they would have killed him on the spot. So he used to hide the drawings underneath the mattresses of his fellow prisoners who were dying of cholera. Uh, so knowing that was the only place the Japanese guards wouldn't search. And you look at these drawings and they're extraordinary. And they are actually documentary evidence of war crimes. He said, he was asked, you know, about building the railway. And his brilliant answer was, one didn't think it was a railway. It was just murder. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But as I said, this is exhibits A to Z and then on again of war crimes. And you look at sort of drawings like uh, uh, British and Australian prisoners of war dragging wagons with tree trunks on them, being used as beasts of burden, or even more horrific, uh, Burmese peasants' heads, beheaded, you know, decapitated heads on a row with sort of Japanese soldiers laughing because they'd been caught pilfering off the Burma railway and they'd been executed. And then you look four years later to stuff that Searle was doing in the St. Trinian's series, and you see little girls pulling a roller on sports day, saying, I bloody hate sports day replicating the image of the British and Australian prisoners of war being used as beasts of burden. And another one of a St. Trinian's girl sharpening a knife on a knife sharpener with a row of heads on the shelf above her and the headmistress coming in and saying, this is Bertha, she's our head girl. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is the most extraordinary thing about Searle, that he, rather than going into deep trauma, although he was in deep trauma, is one of the reasons he abandoned his family 15 years later, was that he retold tragedy for jokes. He did that thing where you actually find redemption through laughter. And Willans does exactly the same thing. And actually, I I had never realised this before I started rereading this again in the last week. Right at the beginning of um, Down With School, about page 14, where it's the beginning of term, two short speeches for headmasters. And uh, it says, I would like to introduce, and it's got footnotes to explain what's going on. I should like to introduce a new master who have joined us in place of Mr. Blenkinsop, who left suddenly, footnote nine, <laughs> who would have thought he, he seemed so nice? <laughs> I feel sure that uh, he will find, fill the place occupied by his predecessor, footnote 10, not too faithfully, I sincerely hope. <laughs> and actually, right at the beginning, you're talking about paedophilia. I mean, it's yeah. clearly yeah, what you're yeah, talking yeah, about, yeah, because yeah, it, was, yeah. it was the background hum, the fucking enormous elephant in the, every single schoolroom in a prep school. We had one in the, my prep school because they caught up with them after 50 years. And you were also dealing with, of course, post-war, many traumatised soldiers yeah. who didn't know what else to do, so who went into schools and took out their various post-traumatic stress disorders on their on their young pupils right lissa is that is that why is is man's inhumanity the ma- to man a perpetual theme the reason why we don't get too hung up on it being a, a 1950s prep school for lower middle class children yes i i think so i've been puzzling as to what why i connected or we, we all connect so greatly with it but the darkness of it appeals to to children as, as much as it does to adults and 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 i grew up with St, with a book of st trinian's cartoons as well and, and, and read the introduction about about the uh Searle and japanese prisoner war camp and the the, the darkness of it is it makes the laughter feel dangerous as well there's a fantastic cartoon of molesworth one and two set it setting a trap for father christmas and yeah. the trap is a gigantic spiked <laughs> man trap which would actually cut someone in half yeah, and yeah. and and it feels naughty and 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 also horrible to laugh at these things, but it's it's liberating as well. Far darker than most children's fiction. The the darkness of it um, is something. Here's a clip from uh, Desert Island Discs 
in 2005. Searle actually did Desert Island Discs twice, and I'll say a bit more about the differences between his two appearances in a minute. But here he is talking about some of the very things we've just been discussing. If you could only take one of those eight records, Ronald, which one would you take? One of those records? Only one. I think the last one. No problem. I mean, uh, if I want to have an uplift uh, stuck on an island, uh, there's no doubt about it. Champagne, even listening to it, I don't have to drink. (laughs) My leg is in the air. (laughs) (laughs) And what about your book? As you know, you get the Bible in Shakespeare. Ah, yes. Well, you know, I thought about this a lot. You know, I'm fascinated by history and fascinated by people. And I thought, well, what I'd love to have is a recent publication, which is the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. But the problem is it's in 60 volumes. So I thought if you could persuade Oxford to bind it into one book, it'd be rather like a concertina. But I'd like to take that as my my one book. And your luxury, what would that be? Oh, champagne. No, I had <laughs> th- actually, I had thought that my luxury would be a mosquito net, because I know that when you're stuck on an island, you're going to be eaten alive anyway by insects. Then I thought, oh, to hell with that, let's have champagne. Because what I would do is I would drink, this, I would have the best possible bottle of champagne, probably Crystal Rodera. Then I would write a note, put it into the bottle, throw it into the sea, saying, please send another one. Searle so putting himself in that tradition, uh, we would agree with him, right? That, that he's in that kind of savage uh, uh, I don't well, know yeah, I mean, the, um, uh, I, I've discovered as I have travelled around the world talking to cartoonists from unhappier countries than ours, um, where they don't have our three hundred year long tradition of doing genuinely hideous pictures of our betters, and um, they, they recoil <laughs> sometimes in horror. And I said, "We've had three hundred years of this. This is what we do. This is, you know, we're part of the conversation. How else would you draw the Prince of Wales except as an obese lecher riddled with syphilis? I mean, there's no other way to draw it. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't recognise him as the Prince of Wales. And so, and he also uh, manages to to uh, introduce a note of vicious politics in, into into quite light-hearted things. On on, on Parents' Day, the headmaster takes the schoolmaster through a series of questions and he realised a series of questions actually a Stalinist show trial in which they're they're having to admit to having sabotaged the school piano and it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, Philippa Henshaw actually, I I didn't know here, in his introduction says, unstoppable satirical verve and a startling width of cultural, political and philosophical range. That's absolutely true. He snatches politics from from all over the place and, and from the you know the most vile history he 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 uses uh, examples to, to to make us laugh but there's also also sort of just wonderful absurdity of it so in that thing this was just re- referring to in that interrogation they suddenly say who invented the steam engine answer <laughs> joseph stalin lissa <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'm going to ask you to read in a minute but i want to just talk to you a bit about from a writer's point of view from a comedy writer's point of view it struck me going back through these books again. One of the the genius things that Willens does with the character of Nigel Molesworth is although Molesworth speaks for, you know, all horrible schoolboys, actually the brilliance of it is that Nigel Molesworth is a very specific character. He's a he's a unique character. So lots of the jokes are coming out of character. Once you get to know him, and I was thinking. You're talking about his uh, the, the parents drinking. <laughs> Clearly, Nigel Molesworth is a very creative boy who's who's <laughs> writing and drawing, and and is able to do creative writing like uh, the, the his prunes essay. <laughs> but he's wildly underappreciated. He's a genius. He's a lonely genius. One of the great insights into reading them again. We haven't even mentioned Fotherington Thomas, but I'm going to say if you read all four books through and they take on the quality of a novel, the the story of the novel of The Complete Molesworth is Nigel <laughs> Molesworth realising he could be friends with Fotherington Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, as the books go on, they become more like equals. And it struck me that's totally right. That's right to the character of yeah, yeah. Nigel Molesworth, right? And that's why it's funny. 
Yes, Nigel is never going to be like others. And and, and he he's viewing this from on high. You know, he's a lowly schoolboy, but actually he's like God in these books. He he, he understands what's going on in everybody. He un- he sees world politics and is able to inject it into into you know his own environment. You know, Nigel Nigel is on mission. It's absolutely extraordinary. I have I have a sneaking suspicion, actually. Well, you can tell by the way he looks that actually Nigel Molesworth grew up to be Jonathan Meads. Oh yes, that's perfect. <laughs> I think. The way he um, the way he stares at things, it's perfect. <laughs> Lisa, would you be kind enough to audition for the uh, audio book of? Uh, absolutely, I'm Molesworth. going to read a bit. Uh, it's called All About Armand, which is Brilliant. about. Um, Molesworth's, well, basically it's about his French textbook. Everyone know that Armand is a wet because he wear that striped shirt and sissy straw hat. In lesson 6A, Armand has just entered into salle manger from the Jordan. <laughs> he enter it not to pinch something to eat, but to give Mama the jolly fleur which he have picked. Papa is pleased. Papa is not worried, as he jolly well ought to be at this base conduct. Papa is highly delighted. Thou art a good boy, Armand, he said. This afternoon I will take thee to the zoo. Ah, you think. Papa is not so dumb as he look. He will throw Armand to the lions. Are there any animals in the zoo? Ask Armand. Oh, but yes, say Papa, without losing his temper at this feeble question. Hopla, hopla, I am so happy. <laughs> Perhaps the lions are not bad enough. Perhaps it will be the loops. The loops could indubitably do a good job on Armand. Is it with these thoughts that Papa go hand in hand with his little son? They pay ten sous. They pass through the turnstile. They enter into zoological gardens. They look round themselves. How big the elephants are, observe Omar at length. <laughs> yes, and also the giraffes. The monkeys are amusings. <laughs> oh yes, on a fair, and there is a fox. Foxes are naughties. You wonder if it was Noel Coward who wrote the dialogue. It's so nervously brilliant, my dear. <laughs> How long can it be before Papa do, Omar? But it's not to be. They pass the loops and the lines, but naught happen, chiz, except that Papa observed that the sky is blue although it is sometimes grey. They go out of the turnstile and return home. Next week we will go to La Campagne, say Papa. <laughs> now you can see what have been going on. The zoo and the board de la mer are too crowded. Get Armand by himself in a meadow, and it is money for jam. Money for jam? <laughs> money for jam. I know. And there's a fantastic illustration of... Um, the enormous backside of an elephant and then Armand, who's the wettest weed in the history of wet weeds, gazing at it and observing how big it is. Oh, God. I mean, I just remember weeping at that. So uh, Martin was te- was telling us uh, that uh, Molesworth starts off as a punch column, no soul involved in the late 30s and early 40s. And following the success of St Trinian's, Willens or Willens' agent approaches Searle to say, "Well, I've got this material, and you, 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 you're the best-selling author of this Centrinians. Maybe we could get together." And initially, Searle's response was, "Well, no, I don't want to do more school stuff." And he said that as soon as he started reading it, he could he could see all the space in it. He thought it was funny, but he could also see what he could what he could bring. So. I, I want to read the have these books were originally published with their subtitles because the subtitles are exquisite in their own right. So the complete Molesworth is made up of four books. The first in 1953, Down with School! Exclamation mark, a guide to school life for tiny pupils and their parents. <laughs> Followed in 1954 by How to Be Top, a guide to success for tiny pupils, including all there is to know about space. <laughs> so that's, that's like that's moving into the space race, isn't it? 1956, Whiz for Atoms, a guide to survival in the 20th century for fellow pupils, their doting maters, pompous paters, and any others who are interested. So that's the... F- and then... The Complete Molesworth is published before Back in the Jug Again, which is the final book. And as far as I can work out, what happens is they have the complete Molesworth ready for publication and Geoffrey Willans dies of a heart attack in early 1958. And they go ahead with the publication of the complete Molesworth containing parts of Back in the Jug Again. And then 
Back in the Jug Again is published with additional material, which all then gets folded into later editions of The Complete Molesworth. So when we listeners say The Complete Molesworth, we don't mean the 1958 shorter version. We mean The the Complete Molesworth, not the C-O-M-P-L-E-T Molesworth. I think any fool knows that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Martin... The language. I'm going to ask you actually about Willen's language. It struck me that there's the text is funny, but it's not just funny. It's misspelt in a in a in a in a way which doesn't really come across when we read it out loud. But actually, when you see it on the page, it's almost like a compliment to the cartoons. Well, exactly. I mean, it it is a, a perfect marriage of text and image. Weirdly. Um, because most cartoons are a battle between text and image, but this is a, a, a perfect marriage. I mean, I remember um, reading a Molesworth book in a, in, you know, it's reading, it's raining outside, read a book, boys. And I, and I had two books to read. One of them was a Molesworth book and the other one was 1984. I think I was about 12 at the time. And the uh, my English teacher, who was a very inspirational teacher in many ways, but he was, he was, he thought I should read the Orwell because he was worried that my spelling was so bad <laughs> that it would just be made worse by reading the Molesworth. Mm. <laughs> so he wanted to corrupt my mind with this horror story about Stalinism instead, which, you know, good for him. They are actually both, um, I think, equals 1984 and the Molesworth tetralogy in many ways. They're about horror, but dealt with in different ways. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, that's it's part of the joy of reading it, and it's actually about literature because, as you say, you can't read it out loud and get the stuff inside. It's almost like almost like the the, the, the typographical conceits in Tristram Shandy. That sounds so yeah. terribly pretentious, no, but of course, no, Tristram no, Shandy. I hilariously absolutely funny. agree. I absolutely agree. It's the the way the words work on the page a huge part of the charm. It, I mean, you know, it's Clockwork Orange or um, Ridley Walker or God knows Finnegan's Wake. You know, you you can't. You can't fully get the, the 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 effect. They're not normal misspellings. I mean, he he, no. he can spell quite complicated words perfectly well. Nobody actually spells no, as in I know something, K-N-O, with nothing on the end of it, or, or happy with only one P. None of these are, are normal or misspellings. No or say with no Y. They're, they're part of Nigel's shorthand as he views the world. I feel, I feel they're just a way of him yeah. writing quickly the deep thoughts that he tends to have quite a lot. Yeah. John? Say a bit about Fotherington Thomas. Apart from the fact that he obviously ended up in a prog rock band after his after school. I mean, he's got... Genesis. He was in Genesis. I'm going to quote Fotherington Thomas here. For probably many of our listeners, this will chime with them. Yeah. I simply don't care a row of buttons whether it was a goal or not. Nature alone is beautiful. That's it. It's, it's and, the, and to which Molesworth appends, I do not think he will catch the selector's eye. Yes. <laughs> Oh. What one of the problems with the, with the book, right? Is you just give up underlining and 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 because it's just so full of gems like that deep dislike, the the nature walk, the deep dislike, yeah. any excuse to go off for a a fag and to and to impugn the the kind of the the the, the, the botany teachers. Um, there's a, there's a bit in Whiz for Atoms. I'm just going to read this little bit. This is a, 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 about the relationship between Fotherington Thomas and Molesworth. It's one of my favourite favourite bits of the whole thing. When Molesworth is reading a crystal ball and he looks into the, what's the future going to be for Grabber, the head boy, and what's the future going to be for Fotherington Thomas, the eye of the prophet Molesworth, next light upon dear little Fotherington Thomas. <laughs> what does the crystal ball reveal for this girlie? Can it be true? Air Vice Marshal Sir Basil Fotherington Thomas, VC, DSO, clubs, spacemans, Oval teenies. <laughs> Air Vice Marshal Sir Basil, Sir Basil Fotherington Thomas lowered himself into the cockpit of the gleaming space jet, complete with all parts, two million quid. <laughs> and so, so Molesworth looks into the future and he sees Fotherington Thomas's obituary. Obituary by a pal. All those who knew Basil Fotherington Thomas will mourn the death of a very brave space pioneer. 
Oh, goody, say Fotherington Thomas, peeping over my shoulder. Oh, goody, Molesworth, you have put me in and made me brave. How can I thank you enough? I'm brave. I'm brave. Hurrah. <laughs> I, I should not count on it, I say. It is only a flight of fancy. Thanks all the same. You are super Molesworth one. You really are. Now, what is your future? Who, me? Oh, I say, gosh, no. Fearfully, I put my great nose towards the crystal ball, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Another splendid creation by Nigel is this daring cocktail frock in burnt orange and squashed muskrat. (laughs) Note how Nigel has modelled bodice and waist in crushed chipmunk and a flaring skirt with matching beads. No wonder that Nigel's beeline is the sensation of the season. Nigel has flair! Exclamation mark. Curses! I take the wretched crystal pill and punt it out of the window. It takes few things to drive me back to the imperfect subjunk of avoir. But this is one of them. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just beautiful, perfect. right? Though? Brilliant, brilliant. So Martin. beautiful. Martin, did you have a? Did you have you got a passage that you that you, you wanted to share? Yeah, with us? I have. Which, just to show how the empire of Molesworth spreads into every corner of life, um, I read this um, at my friend, my old school friend John Lewin's funeral. He tragically, rather tragically, died at the age of forty-one of a brain tumor. But I'd been to see him in hospital, and I uh, and I used to read to him um, when he was in hospital, and I'd read this to him, and it made him laugh, which um, was it was meant to, because it is very funny. And then his widow asked me to uh, read it again at his funeral, but it made people laugh again. And it's Grimes, <laughs> the headmaster Grimes, who is of course an echo of Evelyn War from Decline and Fall, and. Um, it's the first assembly of term. And remember this, he leer, you never had it so good. Well, this is just what we expect. <laughs> we have it every term and our tiny hearts sink to our boots. It will be nothing but lact fra arith geom algae geog ect. And with the winter coming on, it would be warmer in Siberia and a salt mine. Oh, well, we wait for what we know will come next. And what, say Grimes, have we all been reading in the holes? <laughs> tremble, tremble, moan, drone. I have read nothing but read the redskin and guides to the pools. I have also sat with my mouth open looking at Lassie, Wonder Horse, etc. on TV. How to escape? But I have made a plan. Fotherington Thomas, say Grimes. What have you read? <laughs> Ivanhoe, the Vicar of Wakefield, Wuthering Heights, Treasure Island, Vanity Fair, Western Ho, and Water Babies, and that is enough, good boy. And Molesworth, he grinned horribly. What have you read, Molesworth? Gulp, gulp, a rat in a trap. Proust, sir. <laughs> Come again. Proust, sir, a great fr- writer. The book in question was Swan's Way. God blimey. What did you think of it, eh? The style is exquisite, sir, and the characterisation superb. The long ex- evocative passages, silence, thunder Grimes. There is no such book, impertinent boy. I shall have to teach you culture the hard way report for the cane after prayers. Chiz, chiz, to think I have learned that all by heart. It's not fair. They get you every way. They get you every way, yeah. Okay, so uh, something to bear in mind is that they, they're actually, there's a film... Uh, there's an animated film coming of Molesworth and um, Matt Lucas is doing the voice of Nigel Molesworth. And I noticed in the press release for this thing, because I haven't finished it yet, they're filming it at the moment, um, that Jeffrey Willans isn't mentioned anywhere on the press release. Uh, it's very much, Martin, about, you know, um, the director is saying, well, Searle authorised me to, to uh, make a, 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 a movie of his creations, and which seems a bit... You know, off. It certainly is in that Searle didn't. To be fair to Searle, he didn't really take credit for um, exclusive no, I credit mean, for it. Is um, yeah, Willens presumably is still in copyright, so his estate will have something to say about that. I would have thought. Well, let's Who knows? let's hope we've alerted them yeah, let's, <laughs> today let's so. to that happy birthday backlisted. Um, Martin, why should people read? Molesworth now in 2020? Well, just because it's incredibly funny and it's about the universal human condition where we are struggling with self-deprecating wit and humour against the monstrosity of oppression all around us. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's what it's Mm. about. It's it's Mm. actually getting the last laugh uh, because it is incredibly funny. But also, I read it almost 20 years after it was first published. 
And it was still resonating then, and I'm sure it is still resonating now. And so there are generation after generation after generation of people for whom this means something, just in the same way as Winnie the Pooh does and, you know, the, and all that stuff. Um, in fact, I based my, my uh, characterization of uh, David Cameron on Basil Fotherington Thomas. Uh, he was part <laughs> Little Lord Fauntleroy and part and the, the first Tory conference he did when he was leader. I had him skipping on stage going, hello, trees, hello, clouds while the Tory faithful are thinking, string them up, sell it off, string them up, sell it off, string them up, sell it off. <laughs> <laughs> and wondering how this would turn out. He had sort of two kittens next to him. Um, but I, I just wanted to uh, digress briefly about, I, I had a sudden moment of insight yesterday, very much with Molesworth and Fotherington Thomas on the mind, um, about our current Prime Minister, who I assume when this goes out will still be our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who obviously likes to think of himself as um, a kind of Molesworth character. Mm. He uses right. coinages like girly swat and yeah, things like that. Yeah. But I realise he isn't. He isn't. He, he is, in fact, Fotherington Thomas. <laughs> because uh, somebody told me where his, in the new uh, book about him, his mother says where he got this whole idea about the world king, that he wanted to be world king, to stop the screaming in his head, his father hitting his mother, all the other madnesses inside the head of Boris Johnson. And he got the idea of world king from the Trigon Empire, the Trigon Empire possibly, which of course was a science fiction strip that appeared in the back of Look and Learn. Mm. Now for the uh, uninitiated, Look and Learn used to have double page spreads of a nuclear reactor with a double deck of bus for scale. <laughs> and it was solely for girly swaps. It was. Only girly swaps would read Look and Learn. Therefore, Boris Johnson is Fotherington Thomas, an utter wet and a weed, and a girly swat, QED. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Lisa, I was going to ask you for another reading, but I think you've got something special you could read. It. I have. In, uh, in 1986, there was a New Statesman competition in which you had to write a love letter between poorly matched fictional characters. I'm going to read my winning entry. You have to imagine the spelling. <laughs> Dear Madam Bovary, <laughs> I take my humble pen in hand to express my great regard and invite you to my present dwelling, Vincent Custard's Chiz Chiz. Surrounded as I am by masters, prunes and gerunds, your impressive beauty and command of the fruit subjunctive would add a certain <laughs> je ne sais quoi grammar to my bleak dorm. <laughs> also, please and say to tell you, there is a piano on which you can tinkle extensive grounds to blub in and 300 boys starved of cultural contact. Your passionate, hem hem, admirer, Nigel Molesworth-esque. P.S. Could you bring some of your arsenic as Fotherington Thomas is particularly troublesome at the moment? <laughs> Brilliant. Can I, can I just, just add one thing about the pictures? Just This needs to be said. The only time I ever met Quentin Blake when we were doing a, a thing at the British Library and we agreed that... At the beginning of Downward School, the uh, St. Custard's Camera Club, school dog thinking is the finest English drawing of the 20th century. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. There it is. His dogs were like nobody else's dogs. They're not, yeah. they're not cuddly. They're not warm. They're, they're, what are they? They're, they're dogs. It's extraordinary. It captures the dogginess of a dog. Not, but anyway, not that's not me saying that. That is, um, that is Quentin Blake. Oh, fie, lo, egad, and away, for it is the bell and it tolleth for us. Uh, so, super thanks to Martin and Lissa for being top guests and to Nikki and her high-frequency radio set on a wavelength so high that no beat can hear and unbound our very own St Custard's. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Uh, you can download all 124 previous episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, thatlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook, hem hem, and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. 
We aim to survive without paid-for advertising, and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for much less than a plate of prunes and rice, they get two extra lot listeds a month, the dorm where we chums go for a quiet hour to enjoy a film of Marilyn Monroe, a quiet cig, or a plate full of roast turkey. It's ECT, ECT, cheers. Uh, and here are some more of our great lock listener chums. Yes, Richard Schelling, Michelle Metcalf, Heather Easton, James Cook, Michelle Burke, Feather Books, Jane Gregg, Heather Hansen, Miles Brown, Andrew Heavens, Jessica Fox Epstein, David Cuthbert, Paul Martin, Sunil Sharma. Marlon Ferrugia, Susie at Rams Hill, Kendall Spooner, Justin Hegreberg, Glenn Hubbard, Eric Peterson, Chris Hutchison, Milan Carroll, Chris Heaney, Tim McElreath, Paul Rocket, Elizabeth Adams, Neil Denham, Stephen Witkowski, Karen Van Rossum, Simon Hemsley. Hemsley, that's good. Hem Hemsley. And um, we'd also like to say, uh, do you want to give, give out a birthday message, Mitchinson? <laughs> well, I think we should say thank you to everybody over the last five years, all of those people who've contributed to the, what did you say, almost two million downloads and listens that we've had. Um, uh, and, and particularly for all of the patrons, all the people who've supported us over the last year through lockdown and hopefully out the other side. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's become something that Andy and I could never have imagined all those years ago, back when Justin Trudeau, I think, had just been made president of, of, of Canada. And um, uh, yes, Hunger Games um, uh, was were, were just in the cinemas five years ago. <laughs> just, yes, that was a fiction, wasn't it? The Hunger Games, not a, <laughs> yes, not a very real a prospect. Obama was still president. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all our guests over the last five years yes. who's, who've appeared. Who, who, who? I would, I would emphasize this. They choose the books. They do. So uh, when you suggest a book, which is fine, you can do that. But actually, um, our guests usually choose the books, and we'd especially like to thank our guests today, uh, Martin Rosen and. Uh, the original guest, uh, Lissa Evans. Yay! <laughs> guest number one. They'll never take that away from you, Lissa. <laughs> so thanks very much, everybody. See you next time. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.